0: welcome to the crown city podcast i'm your host james de pietro this is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home on this episode i have a very special guest chad augustine is the chief of the pasadena fire department a position that he's held officially since june of this year chief augustine comes to pasadena from the sacramento fire department where he worked for more than 20 years and in a broad range of areas, including operations, administration, human resources, professional standards, training, emergency medical services, and fire prevention. From the first time he visited a fire station as a child, Chief Augustine knew he wanted to dedicate his life to serving others. Originally from the greater Sacramento area, he began his career as a firefighter paramedic and steadily rose through the ranks to eventually serve as his deputy fire chief. In that position, he oversaw 650 sworn and 70 civilian employees, the daily operations of 24 fire stations, and an annual budget of over $135 million. For perspective, this is about three times the size of the Pasadena Fire Department, as we have eight fire stations and a budget of about $56 million. Chief Augustine earned his bachelor's degree in fire administration from Waldorf University and holds a chief fire officer certification from the California State Board of Fire Services. As you will hear in our conversation, while serving as deputy fire chief in Sacramento, Chief Augustine became interested in the law because of the issues impacting his fire department as well as EMS services in the state. This interest led him to pursue and earn his Master's of Legal Studies degree from the University of Arizona, where he graduated magna cum laude. In addition to his work in the fire department, Chief Augustine is a flight paramedic, and his exposure to aviation sparked his interest in flying, and he is now a certified fixed wing pilot. Competition and health have always been important in his life. He was a wrestler, and with the support of his father, he would compete across the country, So it is no surprise that Chief Augustine would go on to become competitive in CrossFit and that this would carry him to being ranked third in the world in his category. I really enjoyed this conversation as Chief Augustine's intensity, dedication, and positive personality are infectious. Because of his experience both in the field and as an administrator, one cannot doubt his capabilities and passion for serving his community, and I'm looking forward to him being in Pasadena for a very long time. So, without further delay, my conversation with Passing of Fire Chief, Chad Augustine. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for the invite, and I'm excited to be here. Well, I think you've built your career around serving and protecting your community as a firefighter paramedic for more than 20 years. As we start, Can you share a little bit more about your background and why you became a firefighter to begin with
1: absolutely i remember it like it was yesterday i visited a fire station and i probably was you know four five six years old and just the impact and kindness that the the crew of firefighters had on me um last you know left a lasting impression 40-something years later, which really kind of set my career in motion that I knew I wanted to do something to help people. And at the time, the fire service was very interesting, but I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do other than I knew I wanted to be in a service-oriented position where I could help, help my community.
0: Well, either growing up or early in your career, who are some of your most influential mentors and why were they so important?
1: My dad was by far probably my biggest mentor. And I didn't, I mean, I appreciated it at a young age, but I didn't truly realize the sacrifices he made until um, I was an older adult. And he was uh, a pharmacist by trade and in in management, but I was a wrestler from, you know, the day I could crawl. Uh, And we traveled literally all over the country and I competed every single weekend. And so he would work Monday, either Monday through Thursday um, or Monday through Friday, depends on when I was traveling for a competition. And then we would travel all weekend and he never had a day off. He was always there. He never missed a, a match or a meet. And right it just became expected you appreciate it but you don't realize what a sacrifice it is until you grow up and you real, and you work a, a monday through friday position and you realize okay when do i actually get things done and it's on the weekends and then uh, you look back and realize he he never had that opportunity because he was always traveling with me and just the the level of respect and discipline to be as that he showed as a as a father and a husband um, balancing work and family and always putting family first, really left those great core values uh, and, and instilled those in me.
0: Thank you very much for sharing that. You know, I think it's a good transition to your background at in Sacramento and kind of your transition to Pasadena. You know, in Sacramento, and correct me if I'm, I'm getting my figures a little bit off, but in Sacramento, you oversaw the daily operations of a department that had twice the annual budget and about three times the number of fire stations. It was actually uh,
1: about triple, almost triple the budget and three to- and also triple the number of fire stations. My portion of the budget that I was responsible for, though, was double of, of what Pasadena Fire Departments is.
0: Incredible. So what lessons do you think you could bring to Pasadena coming from a larger department? And how do you think your leadership style is a good fit for Pasadena Fire?
1: What I learned in Sacramento is uh, <laughs> I, I say how the machine runs, being the capital of California there and just a large city with a lot of needs. You real quickly realize that while we think the fire department <laughs> is the most important department in the city, we really just make up a small portion um, of the pie. And we all, in order for us to be successful, all of us work together as one team to provide the excellent level of service that the community deserves. The other thing that I that I found quickly was even though I had a large budget, it wasn't enough for our department needs. We didn't have enough resources specifically on the EMS and our ambulances. And I, I remember the day I walked in and had a meeting with the city manager and the mayor advocating for additional uh, funds to add additional ambulances. And the response was, if you want to add additional ambulances, go find the revenue. And that really... Uh, I said, okay, I'll take that challenge on and I'll be back with that additional revenue <laughs> with the ask of additional ambulances. And about four years later, we had added three more ambulances. What it taught me was, hey, don't be prepared for a handout. If, if there's a need, you're going to demonstrate the need and then you're going to get creative on how to find the dollars in order to provide that service. And the, the level of service that the community deserved, it really just put a high level of urgency for us to get creative and find those dollars. And and it's something that it was a lot of work, but something I'm proud of. And and then coming into Pasadena, it's that level of teamwork, that level of creativity, and and then just being willing to try something different to get a different result that I I believe it will help Pasadena be successful and just look at problems from a different perspective.
0: In Sacramento, when you had to find the the budget for the addition of three ambulances? Yes. So where did the funds end up coming from? Just out of curiosity.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So some of it was our billing practices. We were using 20 year old technology. And when it comes to medical billing, it frequently is first come first paid, right? And there's only so much money. And uh, so we took our billing turnaround time from 21 days down to 24 to 48 hours. So we really cleaned up our shop. We went completely digital, leveraged every bit of technology we could so that we were doing everything we could on our end to maximize cost recovery. And then we went out and we realized that as a city, we weren't very competitive in, in the marketplace as far as charges compared to some of our surrounding cities. And so we went to council, we advocated to in, increase our billing rates, added some additional fees. And then at the same time, we're really mindful that what we didn't want was people not to call 911 because they couldn't afford it. So we drafted a fee waiver policy that went right along with it for those who didn't have the ability to pay, always making sure that patient care remained uh, number one. And then we maximized some federal funds uh, through CMS and better reimbursement. And what that looked like, it was about a three and a half million dollar a year improvement and a couple years even more than that. So something I was really proud of that It wasn't just me, it was a team approach, but what it looked like was three more ambulances on the road to be able to serve the community and more ambulances available in a time of need.
0: That's a great example of kind of thinking outside the box, doing some operational improvements, asking for making some adjustments on fees and things like that really shows the kind of creativity that's involved in some of these budget issues that people really don't appreciate. So going back to your kind of leadership style, I mean, how would you characterize of yourself,
1: so uh, I think what I would say is right. We all strive to be that like servant leadership and transformational. But really, what I want is and and my two deputy chiefs just walked out of the room, uh, and they were in a couple previous meetings with me. My goal is that when I retire from Pasadena, that. We don't miss a beat. That we've done such great succession planning and employee development that it, it doesn't matter if it's me or five other people, we all have the same knowledge, skills, and abilities so that the citizens of Pasadena are, are always being properly served. And our, our workforce is constantly growing. And I, I just have the privilege of today, and hopefully for the next many years, being the person who gets us through the ship. But it's a team approach. And my goal is to empower my staff and my team. Team so that they can go out and do the great work that I know they're capable of doing.
0: One of the aspects that attracted you to Pasadena was that our department had resources that are not traditionally found in cities our size. How would you compare our capabilities to other similarly sized departments? For our residents of Pasadena, it's just what you're accustomed to. You go, "Hey, Pasadena Fire, we do.
1: They do a great job. Commonly known as providing the Cadillac level of service, but it really is unique. Uh, I can again. I come from a, a department triple the size and having all these uh, resources. And when I say that, it's, it's fire suppression, it's wildland, it's EMS, it's special operations, urban search and rescue, you name it, we had it. And then I come here to Pasadena and they have EMS, fire suppression, wildland, urban search and rescue, you name it, it's the same. For a a department that's one-third the size, and it's really a testament to the department, the members, as well as the city leadership being supporting the fire department and its ability and desire to grow and be an all-risk department. Because as we know, uh, no matter what the, the call is, when somebody dials 911, it's our job to mitigate that emergency. And the more tools that we have, knowledge, skills, and abilities, the better equipped we're gonna be to be be able to handle it.
0: You, know, you recently commented that younger firefighters react differently to traditional kind of tough love approach that's common in a disciplined profession like yours. You know, how has the culture of fire departments changed since you first started? And how do you provide the necessary support to a new generation of firefighter paramedics?
1: That's a great question. When I started, I I specifically remember in the '90s, many departments were adding paramedics, and you had the post-Vietnam era workers that were really retiring from the fire service, and so we were the young kids that were going to ruin the fire service. Paramedics—they didn't came with education and skills, but without a, a lot, frequently not coming with a whole lot of background in the trades, construction industry, and we wanted to be healthy, right? Uh, That post Vietnam era uh, was, you know, steak and potatoes and bread with every meal and you smoked a couple packs of cigarettes a day. And and we were coming in really as as high functioning paramedics, which is 80% of what the fire service does. So fast forward 25 years, and now we're the older generation and the newer generation. It's the exact same stories, which is is funny to me, I, I chuckle. But really what that means is if we want employees that stay in Pasadena, then we need to create an environment that's conducive to their learning and their quality of life. In my experience, what I found is this generation is less motivated by money. They they value their, their time off. They value the service to the community, and they want to feel valued. Um, they do not respond well to somebody in their face yelling at them, The kind of the paramilitary uh, organization. And while the fire service definitely needs to have discipline and structure, creating an environment where employees feel valued and empowered to do the right thing, and having the ability to balance a work life and, and time off is really important. Important. And that's so that's one of the, the big priorities that I'm shooting for here coming into Pasadena as we're grossly understaffed.
0: We view Pasadena as an urban area. For those that live here, I mean, we're not that urban compared to Los Angeles, but we consider ourselves more of an urban area. But we do have hills above the Arroyo and are very close to the Angeles National Forest. You know, when brush and wildfires are sadly becoming more and more common. Is there a way to more actively prevent brush fires in our community? Yes. And here we are the third year
1: in a row on track to be the worst wildfire season on uh, in California history, the Dixie Fire being the single largest fire in California history, and the second fire overall, right, if you include X fires. Uh, just some easy stats. Year to date, this year we're almost at a million acres burned and about 6,400 fires up and down the state. And last year at this time, which was the worst fire season on record, we were um, like 5,700 fires and less than 300,000 acres burned. So we're already, you know, over 650,000 acres more burned year to date. And it's it's really, it's, it's not a surprise. We're in super extreme drought conditions. We um, still need to do a better job with clearing debris, uh, having defensible space. Uh, there's a, a lot of arguments on, you know, forest clearing. But when you have beetles that come through and kill off lots of of trees in the forest and it it just means that you have kindling (laughs) wood ready to just burn and then you have drought conditions it's not a surprise when um, we have these massive fires and then more and more we're doing this urban sprawl where we want to get out of the urban area and live in an area that's less occupied with people but that usually means that we're in a wild a wildfire area or at least a higher risk. Um, and that same beauty when you're surrounded by trees and, and bushes quickly can put your, fi- your house at risk during a, a fire. So we're using, really what we're now looking to is thermal technology and drone use and being able to spot a fire when it's a foot, one foot by one foot, because we have the drone use or we have thermal technology. And what's that mean? It means that we get resources there even quicker before a fire has an opportunity to spread and make it harder to extinguish.
0: Right, because the opportunities probably within the first couple of hours. Yes. And when you
1: have a fire that's wind driven and, you know, thick brush that is readily burning, it's really hard for um, crews to be able to extinguish it. And then if it's in an area where it's hard to even get personnel in there, you're really relying on hand crews and, um, and aerial assets. And those are, those are a premium.
0: Right especially now with, like you said, the Dixie Fire up north. Yes. And I'm sure we're going to have some issues down here at some point as well. It's just, it's just yes. in- inevitable. The odds are, right? And, and historically, uh, Northern
1: California burns at the beginning of the summer. In the fall with the Santa Ana's, Southern California has the larger fires. And, and um, I'm hoping that this year does not that does not occur, but our crews will be well prepared.
0: I'm sure they will be. You, know, you, you mentioned it before that, you know, like many other fire departments, you know, Pasadena is faced with a staffing crisis. And I think we're operating about 80% capacity. Is that correct? That's correct. So the, the reasons for the situation are, very, are varied, but you have shared that often smaller departments lose great staff to larger cities. In our case, the city of Los Angeles or LA County, how can we attract and retain the best and brightest when our staff has other opportunities?
1: I look at it as a fork in the road where you're going to have the employees that want to be at the larger departments because they want the more opportunity. They want to work by the ocean. They want to work on a helicopter. They want that opportunity. My goal is that we have such a value-driven department where the employees feel um, empowered and have the enjoyment that it's so hard for them to leave this job, but they may still do that. Then the other, the other side of, of that fork in the road is the employees that want to be here, but have left because they never get a day off because we're short staffed They keep getting force hired. The pay and benefits structure is is not adequate and they don't feel valued. That group of people is who I'm really targeting. And what's that look like? Well, it, pay and benefits is only one portion of it, but it, having adequate staffing so that when it's your day to go home and you want to see your kids and your family, that you actually get to go home that's very important. And that means that we have a constant flux of hiring new employees and training them. And we can't, we can't even relax for a year because once you, especially on a smaller department with retirements and promotions, if you don't have timely fire academies, you, you get behind really quick. And then really having a robust, what we call a local area recruitment where we are targeting um, our youth at a young age, middle school, high school, and giving them clear paths. Um, and I use a, a ladder as the analogy where they have clear rungs that they can climb and we help them get there to get to the top of the ladder. And that la- the top of that ladder is employment with the city of Pasadena. Um, and COVID uh, made it tough with everything shutting down, but you will see a robust local area recruitment effort here, starting back up in Pasadena here in the next uh, couple months.
0: Pasadena is a a diverse city and it's becoming more diverse. How do you think we recruit people from our community uh, so that the fire department represents the racial and ethnic diversity of our city?
1: I think the first thing we do is we recognize that we are a better department being honest that if we re- if we reflect the community we serve. And so the very first thing I'll say is uh, half of, or more of our population is female, and um, the Pasadena Fire Department is about four and a half percent of our employees are female. So we have a long ways to go. What's the national average for females in the fire service? About four and a half percent. So we are right in line with the national average, but we're better than that. The second thing we do is we work aggressively on our local area recruitment because that is the future of our fire service in the next three to five to ten years. And whether they choose Pasadena Fire or they choose another profession, if we're we're working with our youth and giving them skills that are going to help them be better uh, community members brothers, fathers, um, and friends, then it's a win, regardless if they come to Pasadena Fire. Of course, we hope that when we invest in our community that they're going to come back and work with us. But that is definitely a top priority. And then we aggressively look and say, okay, if if we're using most, most places are using the same state hiring list, then we need to say, if we have a top tier that's all equally qualified, then, um, and they've all passed every portion, and we have a hundred people that are all equally qualified, then let's hire um, a group out of those equally qualified that properly reflects our community. And I think Pasadena does, or at least strives to do a, a really good job in that area. Can we do better? Absolutely. And will we? Yes.
0: One issue that we hear a lot about, and it's usually around policing, is the inability of police officers or firefighters or paramedics to live in the community because of housing prices? I remember going to an open house at station 34, and that's our local station, which we love, absolutely love, and talking to one of the paramedics there. And he said that he lived in Ventura. Ventura is a beautiful place, but I mean, it, it, it's hard for someone that, you know, either they live there for the cost of living or for various other reasons, but, you know, we don't see a lot of people being able to afford living in the cities that they serve. Is there anything that we can do to kind of address that issue? I know it's a, it's a very large question. It's a very complicated question. It's an interesting
1: question. I I just recently moved into the city and I believe out of my workforce of 189 employees, um, I'm number nine or 10 employees that live in the city. And uh, like just being honest, right? Like. I'm a department head and make a a, a fair salary, and it was hard for me to be able to purchase a townhome in Pasadena because the cost of living is so high. And so you look and say, well, what do other cities do that have similar issues or even worse? And if it's a priority to have city employees, you can get creative. You can do no interest or extremely low interest housing uh, loans to help employees be able, as an incentive to be able to live in the city. You can do a housing stipend. Of course, all of those cost money. And in lean economic times, it's a challenge. But if most of our employees would love to live in Pasadena, but when I ask them, hey, how come you live in Temecula, they say, well, I I can't afford to live in Pasadena. So instead, I drive an hour and 45 minutes because I can't afford to live in Temecula um, over Pasadena. And so our cost of living is such that it becomes very challenging. Um, And that's what other other communities have done. They've looked for creative ways to assist their public safety, police and fire, to be able to live in the community.
0: Having interacted with firefighters, engineers, and fire marshals, both in my personal life and then also in professional life, I've always found them to be highly professional but very intense individuals. As an aside, I mentioned Station 34. My youngest daughter suffers from fibril seizures when she gets high fevers. And a couple years ago, she had one at home and my wife called my home one and an ambulance crew came from 34, were incredibly nice to to my wife and my daughter, brought her to Big County, uh, which is where the closest pediatric ER was But um, I can't say enough about the professionalism of your staff and your crews. So I just wanted to give a plug and uh, voice my appreciation for your department. But kind of getting back to personalities and you work in an incredibly demanding and challenging profession. But whenever I've seen you with your acceptance speech or, or your introduction speech, when you're sworn in or having interacted with you a couple of times, you always have a smile on your face and have such incredible enthusiasm. How do you maintain a healthy balance of calm in such a demanding profession?
1: I love the critical thinking portion of this job and the stress to be to be forced to perform when amidst chaos. And thankfully, most of the time when things are going really fast, most firefighters and paramedics have an ability to slow everything down and be able to process it um, so that we can do our job. What I would say though is that um, I look at my attitude and my outlook as a choice. And even when things aren't great in life, that is still my choice. I wake up every morning and spend a little bit of of quiet time, but one thing I do is I spend 10 minutes journaling every morning of the things that I'm grateful for. It's interesting because the list changes every single day. But what it really does is it's a reminder that even if there's a couple things that aren't going great in your life, you realize you're like, I just listed 38 items that I'm so thankful for. And it just helps me refocus on the positive things instead of dwelling on the one or two uh, negative things that are going on.
0: That's a great approach. Because of your profession, you see people in the most challenging and difficult situations. And I could see how it'd be incredibly taxing on a paramedic firefighter to see that day in and day out. And it's incredible to kind of hear the process that you go through to kind of ground yourself a little bit more. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I hope that you kind of tell your your department that as well and, and make mental health you know a component, because I think that's incredibly vital for the longevity of a of a firefighter paramedic in your profession and
1: in, in the old days I say old days right when I started in my profession there wasn't the awareness of the mental health um, that we have today and it's still growing but so what were the outlets well people would smoke they would drink but right? all the things that we that are really unhealthy and Uh, you talking about your child, all of us are softies for kids, right? Like those are the calls for us that um, are really high stress and we really want to make sure we get it right because most of the the vast majority of the time they didn't choose the, the decisions to get them into that emergency where frequently as adults we're making choices that get us to whatever the emergency is. But having an outlet, having the ability to have some sort of a balance in your life and whether it's journaling whether it's taking a walk for me it's it's crossfit just having some outlet because eventually if you're just stuffing it down uh internally it's gonna come out and um it's it's not for you for your long-term health of your marriage your family your health and well-being we have to have outlets otherwise uh, we just to see otherwise we're not going to be successful. We see too many things that um, people shouldn't have to see in their in their lives. That you have to have a way to process it.
0: And I, I want to point out that you're you've also been a flight paramedic. Or do you still do that? Yes,
1: I've been on a I've been on a leave of absence, starting my career here. And in general, right, like the thing that I love most about that job, you have the sickest patients, but the Necessity to be a team and function as a team is even more critical. You have a pilot, a nurse, and a paramedic, and that teamwork makes or breaks you. You're not getting anywhere without the pilot, and no one person can do that. The care that that patient needs, and so you really rely on um, your partner. And it's really fun. I, I think of it as just critical thinking and problem solving to get to solve whatever the problem is to get them to the destination hopefully still alive and in better condition, and and I really enjoy that challenge.
0: I didn't realize that the crew included a paramedic and a nurse, so who, in that situation, who is the, is there a lead? Yeah, so in some,
1: um, like if you go to Europe, you might have a physician um, on there. Some um, programs are nurse-nurse, but your most by far your most common configuration is a nurse and a paramedic. And really what you're you're bringing is um, the expertise from a hospital, whether it's an emergency room or an ICU, and the expertise of the paramedics from the pre-hospital. You bring them together and there's nothing you can't handle. It's kind of the, the thought process. And what, what we say is, hey, our goal is that you don't know Who is the paramedic and who the nurse is because you work so well together and you train so well that a nurse can walk out and be the lead um, on the side of a freeway um, of a major car accident. And the paramedic can come into an ICU and be the lead on some really sick patient in an ICU just because of your cross training and your communication. And so, again, that's just another fun challenge. And uh, when you have a high performing crew, you take a lot of satisfaction in that.
0: You recently became a pilot. So did that come from being a flight paramedic? It did. I knew, uh, gosh, young that I wanted
1: to, that I wanted to be a paramedic and that my primary goal was to be in the fire service. This was like high school, college, and that my backup plan was going to be that I was going to go to a nursing school. And that either way, I knew I wanted to have a job on a lifelight helicopter. And so I always would say had the two best jobs in the world being able to work for the fire department, and then moonlight on a on a helicopter. But aviation is like a different language. And so just learning from the pilots, they're talking to the different air traffic controls and the different airspace and rules with weather, it was fascinating to me. And then just the piece of flying through the sky and watching a sunrise or sunset. Um, And so I I had finished my bachelor's degree and was going to go get my master's. And my wife's like, hey, why don't you just do something for the fun of it before you go back to school? And so I took a little break from school and and became a pilot. And uh, I thank her probably about twice a week for that because it's just so fun. And at some point I want to, I, I say I'll be the eternal pilot student because there's always another rating to get it's kind of like the fire department there's always something else you can train on and get better at and so it's not
0: something i get to do full-time but I, i really enjoy it one of the many exciting things about you is that and you've alluded to this a little bit is that you are incredibly into crossfit to the extent that you were ranked third in the world in the crossfit game several years ago Where did your passion for CrossFit come from and how hard is the training to be considered one of the best in the world? I was, as I had mentioned, I was a wrestler
1: since I could crawl. And um, my first year in college, I had had a couple injuries and was like, okay, I'm not going to wrestle anymore. So then I took up bodybuilding because I liked working out. I wanted to have a challenge and something to... um, to work towards and the discipline and I really enjoyed the nutrition side of it and the dieting and that was fun but I was in the fire service I was like well this bodybuilding stuff is not really conducive you're dieting you're miserable you you can't control when you're going to eat and so I started doing powerlifting, and then that was it in the early stages of CrossFit um, kind of I'm um, starting It really got its roots in like 07 08 and I stumbled across CrossFit in 2010 and I just fell in love with it. First off, it was but there's so much application for the military, police and fire in what we need to do in our job. And I always wanted to be a good uh, representative um, to my crews and my members of, hey, it's important for us to stay fit for the job. And then the more I I started doing CrossFit, the the challenge was fun because you need to be pretty good at a lot of things. From gymnastics to uh, Olympic lifting to powerlifting to running to swimming, and so there was—I never got bored in my training. It was always something to get better at. And then I was on a team, and we were—we had some pretty good success, um, making it to the CrossFit Games multiple years in a row. And when you're on a team and you get along there's nothing more enjoyable that again it's like having a high performing crew on a helicopter or a high performing crew on a fire engine or in the workplace you just you build off each other and and that camaraderie is is really great which just made it even more enjoyable and i was hooked even more and then after a few years i um decided to try and tackle it as an individual which you win or lose on your own merit uh you have no you know if if somebody beats you you just tip your hat but uh i enjoyed that part very different than the team aspect um but have always just i envision myself in my 60s continuing to compete in crossfit and uh, trying to reach some of those goals that every year i i log as hey this is going to be my goal for the year and whether i attain it or not i I, uh, i either check it off or mark it on the on the list for the
0: next year it's incredible you can find the time to, to be that competitive because I've tried to do uh, things kind of in my personal life and it's like it, it's consistency is the hardest thing for me but I mean with the d- discipline that you have it sounds like the sky's the limit because because of the kind of the structures and the approach that you have as I've gotten
1: older like I'm like in the master's uh, age groups that, for CrossFit and what you have is all, um, they're not, none of us are full-time professional athletes anymore. Like the 27 year olds, we're all in our forties and fifties and have full-time jobs and families. And so we celebrate each other, right? Like it's a competition when it's three, two, one go, and then you're immediately celebrating each other. And that camaraderie is so much fun. It's really what motivates you to keep, to keep trying to better yourself.
0: Well, as we kind of wind down our conversation, I would be very respectful of your time. Uh, one question that I wanted to sneak in before we kind of wind up our conversation was, um, you've expressed an interest in the law to be an advocate for EMS issues and to better understand labor relations, personnel issues, and this probably led to your earning your master in legal studies a degree from the University of Arizona, where you graduated magna cum laude. Where do you see the parallels between the law and the fire services? That's a great question, and I
1: stumbled across an interest in law as a deputy chief. I had oversight of of HR side of the house, and so I was working with our city attorney. We were working on uh, legal aspects and discipline, then um, also on a lot of HIPAA issues. And what I found was the law is there's a lot of it's up for interpretation in so many areas you ask different experts and they'll come up with different opinions and i really enjoyed that of being able to do research and come up with a legal opinion and working with with general counsel and some of our different city attorneys it really piqued my interest and then um, on some of our ems issues there's a lot of I'm trying to, I wanna say this politically correct. There is a lot of fights up and down the state of California between public agencies being fire departments and private institutions, uh, private ambulance companies. And more and more fire departments are realizing that a big portion of what we do is EMS. And that if if we have ambulances, they're available into this community we serve, we get to staff them and we think we provide a higher level of service. Some of the private ambulances do a phenomenal job, right? This is where I have a good balance because the helicopter company I worked for was a private, privately owned company. But those same privately owned companies are are responsible to their shareholders. They also, the 911 uh, system is not the only types of calls they respond to. So sometimes they're not available and the cities have less control. Well, the we call it the right to provide that service or 201 rights, and it's part of the health and safety code. But again, uh, it really, what it, what it meant was we were doing EMS advocacy and working with attorneys and Ultimately, we were trying to do what was best for the community. But it was fascinating to me. And it wasn't so much for me about the fight. <laughs> what, was, what I enjoyed was learning about the law and the history. And you realize if you want to change the law, you better, you better step up to the plate and have the knowledge to be able to, to have a good argument or a legal opinion. And so when I was going back to school, I thought, well, I want to study the law. I envision that in my retirement, I would love to do EMS advocacy and study more in much more detail EMS law. And just I really enjoy it, so would love to go back to bachelor, would love to go to law school. Well,
0: your your resume is incredible because here you are. You do CrossFit. You're interested in the law. You're a pilot. You're a paramedic and a firefighter. I mean, there's not a whole lot left. <laughs> I say I'm a work in progress on a whole bunch of things. Because
1: if you said, what are you really good at? I'd be like, oh, I don't really think I'm really good at a lot of things, but I like to work hard and I don't mind putting in the work to try and get better. And, And that's what's
0: fun for me. You and your wife moved to Pasadena not knowing a single person in the city. And this shows a tremendous amount of faith in Pasadena Fire, but also us as your new community. How can we best serve you, your staff, and the department?
1: It was, I w- I'll agree with you, we didn't know a single person. My wife grew up in Huntington Beach. Her family still is here, so she was excited. But uh, that's 45 miles away. And uh, not knowing a single person in this town or on the department, uh, it was scary. But I just felt like God was saying, hey, this is, these doors are being open for you. And my wife's a business owner in Sacramento and was like, how are we going to make this happen? And it didn't matter what, what the problem was, we were able to overcome it. And we are with, it's funny because I go, I still go up and see my parents in Sacramento on a regular basis and it is absolutely not home anymore. I feel like Pasadena is home and this community has welcomed us with open arms. And more importantly, they've right? Like you always, you feel comfortable and thankful when you're welcome, but more importantly, you want your spouse to feel welcome. And, uh, there's a whole group of people that, you know, they make sure that they take Sandra, my wife out to, to dinner or for a cup of coffee or just check in. And those are the things as, as a husband that makes you really excited and proud. And my, I guess my ask for support is that you continue to support the fire department and know that I'll make decisions as your fire department CEO that we believe are best for this community. And if I make a mistake, it'll be because I'm trying to do what's best for the community and learning as I go, but that uh, we will always do what, what we believe is best for this community um, and make decisions that are best for the fire department and just hope that you continue to support the fire department.
0: Great. Well, chief, that's a great way to wrap this conversation up. Thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena, a new part of Pasadena, but a part of Pasadena uh, for embracing this new opportunity with our city and for being so generous with your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for the
1: opportunity to have a great conversation and uh, just for me to be able to share a little about myself.
0: Again, my many thanks to Chief Augustine for coming on the show. I would be remiss to not acknowledge and also thank Chief Augustine's Executive Assistant, Miriam Movsesian, for her help coordinating our schedules and testing the system so we could make this happen. And thank you for listening. This podcast is free, but it takes time and effort to produce it. If you are local to the greater Pasadena area and are interested in sponsoring the show, please let me know. And if you're a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, I would love to learn more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing and rate and review the show so that others can find it. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at com and follow me on Instagram. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast. And until next time, please remember to stay well, stay positive, and as always, see you around town.